book of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, it's page 911 if you're using that blue Bible. By the way, remember, as I said in the announcements, the ACs have an issue. So if you need to fan away with that plastic page in front of you there, and the pew, fan to your heart's content. So Acts chapter 2 is that first Pentecost after our Lord Jesus' resurrection and ascension when he promised he would baptize the church with the Holy Spirit. And so it says three times he baptized the church by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And so Peter begins preaching the gospel. As he preaches, he draws from the Hebrew Scriptures. He talks about who Jesus is, what he has done, will do, is doing and will do for his people. And he ends with that famous statement in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so the audience cries out, what must we do? And so Peter keeps preaching. He says to them, he says, you need to repent and be baptized. Every one of you as Jesus commanded for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promises to you, to your children, and to those who are far off to as many as the Lord will call to himself. And Peter continues in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So keep that in mind. Let's go now to Second Chronicles chapter 5 as we continue our series in First and Second Chronicles. Reclaim, revive, reform, return will be on page 361. So Solomon has built the temple and now comes the big day when it's going to be dedicated. Actually, it's going to be a big week. It's like seven days of dedication. And it starts in chapter 5, verse 2, all the way to chapter 7, 10. Some of this I'm going to summarize, some I'll read. So let's follow along then, chapter 5, verse 2. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel and Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, out of the city of David, which is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. So keep that festival in mind. I'll come back to it later. And so then the Levites come and they gather all the furnishings out of the tabernacle and the ark and they bring it all to the new temple. And so verse 7, then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And so then comes the, inside the ark is only the Ten Commandments. That's all that's left there. And at this moment then comes God in his personal presence. He comes like he did at the end of Exodus 40. And so that starts down in verse 11, where also you have this interruption, this parenthesis, where you see that Solomon has prepared everyone's role in the worship service. But then the Lord comes at the end of verse uh, verse uh, 13, and then when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of Yahweh was filled with the cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. Then Solomon said, oh, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. 
Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. And he continues down that line, rehearsing God's historical faithfulness. And he says things again, very similar in verse 10. Now Yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. And I built, have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Solomon is standing, verse 12 and 13, he's throwing his body into his praise. So he's standing with his hands lifted as he praises. And then he kneels down and he lifts up his hands in prayer. And he continues saying, verse 14, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. And he wraps at that prayer at the end of verse Uh, that part of the prayer at the end of verse 17, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. And now Solomon points specifically to the house, to the temple, the palace of God. And he says in verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, how much less this house that I have built. And yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his plea, O Yahweh, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And at this point, beginning at verse 20 through verse 39, in this prayer of dedication, he refers to eight different scenarios, different situations that people might find themselves in and would come to the house of the Lord or pray toward the house of the Lord. Either come there and pray or look there and pray. And almost every one of them he says, and hear from heaven your dwelling place and answer their prayer all the way down to verse 39. And then Solomon wraps up his prayer. Now, oh my God, let your, verse 40, now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Yahweh God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your, of your might. Let your priests, O Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Yahweh God, do not, return, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled Yahweh's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, they fell on their faces before the Lord, and they shouted out and sang, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the king and the priests and all the people sacrifice and have a great feast. And so verse 6, the priests stood at their posts, the Levites also with the instruments for music to Yahweh that King David had made for giving thanks to Yahweh for His steadfast love endures forever. And the feast and the festivities last seven days because the festival is seven days long. 
So then it wraps up on that last day at the end of verse 10. And he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that Yahweh had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Brothers and sisters, friends, what I have summarized and read for you from Acts 2 and what I have summarized and read to you from 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7, it is the joy-filling, life-giving word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, high and lofty one who dwells in eternity, in the high and lofty place, and yet dwells with the ones who are contrite and of a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. O revive us this day as you draw near to us and draw us near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we'll be right there in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7. You'll need to have your Bibles open there. If you're visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide, there's a sermon outline with lots of space for notes. Everybody needs to be alert that in the questions at the bottom of the sermon notes, there's a fill in the blank. And when I get there, I will tell you, here's the fill in the blank answers. And then everybody will rush out with their pens quickly and fill it in. But that's in there as well. So let me tell you a short story about... Uh, our church, the church we were at in Midland, Texas. Some of this is before I got there, and then I got there, and there's more to the story. But that young church, it was a long road for that young church. Our fledging little church in Midland began, actually, if I remember the stories correctly, began in a living room after an R.C. Sproul conference or something. I don't remember. There was something in there of that. And then over the years, it moved to a funeral home, and it was abruptly... Uh, forced to move out of the funeral home because the funeral home owners sold the building to somebody. And so they scrambled and they ended up in a side chapel of an Anglican church. It was a big building and they ended up in the side chapel over by the parish hall while the aging uh, Anglicans were there. They ended up having about six people, their youngest member, 64. Can you imagine their youth ministry? Anyways, so. And so we got to be in the side chapel And they were also renting out that side of the building to a daycare, to a a non-Christian necessarily daycare. So the daycare was in there, and that means there was lots of grime, and there was lots of stinky, rotting food. You know, kids like to scrub food in the carpet and all that, right? And so it was hard to do until finally the daycare, there was some financial um, uh, irregularities. And so the Anglicans had to tell them to walk out. And so they had to leave. And then at that point, we were able to cl- change the carpet and do some other things. But we were just squatters. We were just renters. It wasn't our place at that point. And the church kind of grew and it shrunk and it grew and it limped along and it shrunk and it grew. Even Sunday school, kids Sunday school, we had Sunday school. Then for a year, we didn't have Sunday school. Because we didn't have money with kids. And then we had Sunday school because we had some people with kids. And then we didn't have Sunday school because we didn't have money with kids. And then finally we had Sunday school with kids because we had people with kids. It was great. But after years of renting out that side part of, the, of this church building, we finally were allowed to buy the church building. We bought it. And there was a sigh of relief. We're finally home. And so the day came that we gathered for a special Sunday evening service in which we dedicated the building. 
We prayed prayers, dedicating the building. The building would always be used to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But in all of those prayers at that building dedication service, there was a ton of voicing of praises and thanksgivings. Thank you, Lord, that we finally have a place. It was wonderful. It was a moving and arousing day, and it's etched deeply in my memory, just that moment. There's just no feeling like that feeling. And you get a sense of it as you... At this moment, as the temple is being dedicated, the people of God feel as if they have finally put down their roots and are home. So then there's three points, and they kind of go just with the chapter. So chapter 5, then the first part of 6, and then the rest of 6 into 7. That's the three points. And so notice it begins in chapter 5 with the right people doing the right things. Part of the right things is the fact that the Levites are now carrying all of the furnishings of the tabernacle. They're the only ones allowed to carry them. And if you remember the story from 1 Chronicles 13, it was a bad day when David decided to do his own thing and carry God's furnishings on the moving cart. That was a bad day. But they've learned their lesson. And now years later, Solomon has learned it. He's got the right people doing the right things. But notice that in chapter 5, after all of the care that has been taken to construct and beautify the palace of God, the temple. The celebration for its dedication, notice it is not tossed together in a haphazard fashion. I mean, it takes time to pull together a worthwhile celebration. I mean, there's a sense in which they waited till the seventh month, and specifically the festival of the seventh month, to have the celebration, and that gave them time to put things together. So they were able to bring all the furnishings. And you get down to verse 11, 12, and 13. They were able to put, Psalm was able to put all the priests in order so they knew when to sing and how to do all that stuff. It takes time to pull together a worthwhile celebration. And you know this if you've ever put together a wedding. Some of us have put together a wedding recently, haven't we? Yes. Yeah. And you know that because why? Because the wedding is a big day and it's an important moment. And everything about it just shouts, this is significant, right? And it takes a lot of time and all background work and putting the right people in the right places and making sure that everybody walks down the aisle at the right time, you know, things like that. Because it's important. Or think about graduations, right? Just back in May, I was asked to speak at a homeschool graduation. It's... uh, Eight of the kids that had, uh, I watched them grow up here for 10 years at this classic conversations that meets in here. Got to watch them from when they were eight all the way to 18. And they asked me to come speak at their graduation. It was wonderful. And when I went, everything was orchestrated. It was well thought out. Everybody knew where they were to be and when they were supposed to speak and when they were supposed to sit down and when the diplomas were supposed to be given out and all that stuff, right? So it was a worthwhile celebration. Therefore, it takes time And it takes preparation. Now don't get me wrong, there's a place, a proper place for spontaneity when God surprises you. But when there's time, then there should be preparation and there should be orchestration. Because why? Because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. I mean, you think about our worship service. You look at that worship guide, I'm going to tell you, we didn't put that together in 10 minutes. Right? A lot of it's routine, but we didn't put it together in 10 minutes. 
Right? It took some thinking through. And Pamela didn't sit back here and just say, hey, I think I'll play piano today. She's been practicing. If you'd come in early, you hear her practicing. It takes preparation. Why? Because he's worth it. Okay? And so that's what you see going on here. Somebody put it to you in a different way. It should never be, there should never be a pitting of ardor against order. There should never be a pitting of passion against pomp. You know how I like acing it, so I had to do it, okay? It should always be together. Ardor and order go together. You can't miss it here in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Passion and pomp, it all fits together. Because why? Because he's worth it, thank you. He's worth it. Well, notice that the festival that this celebration happens on is the festival of the seventh month, verse 3. You'll see it again when you get to chapter 7, verse 10, because it lasts for seven days. And this particular festival is called the Feast of Succoth or the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, depending on your translation. And I gave you, I think, in the sermon notes, the reference where you can find that in Leviticus 23, a couple places in Leviticus 23. What is the festival of booths? What is this festival of tabernacles? It was a festival that God ordained as a celebration of the end of Israel's wayfaring and wandering. They finally came home. A celebration that God preserved them while they were strangers in the wilderness, but now they're celebrating it here in the land. We've made it home. It's a celebration of the end of Israel's wandering and wayfaring. Oh, how fitting to have the temple dedicated on this day because the temple would always be the rock-solid reminder they now have a place. They have roots. They belong here. And even the Lord, even Yahweh, gives His approval, chapter 5, verse 14, and shows up in a substantial way, very similar to Exodus 40, when the tabernacle was being dedicated And so notice that it's not only the right people doing the right things, but then Solomon points out how the right God has done the right things. And that's the first 17 verses of chapter 6. Chapter 6, the first 17 verses. The right God having done the right things. Notice how Solomon cannot let this go. The Lord's faithfulness is being put on full display. And so Solomon rehearses the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice in verse 4 the way he puts it. Blessed be, I mean chapter 6. Blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David our, my father. There it is. And then it comes up again in verse 10. Now Yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made. In fact, he did this as Yahweh promised. And he says it again in verse 15. Who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, you spoke with your mouth. And with your hand, you have fulfilled it this day. He's rehearsing the persistent, habitual, dogged faithfulness of the Lord. And when he does it, notice it comes right back to the principle we keep hearing over and over again. And we're reminded of what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. So here's Solomon rehearsing the steadfast love of the Lord. And notice in verse 12 and 13, he throws his posture into his praising and prayer. He stands with his hands raised up. 
And then he kneels down with his hands raised up. Right? That physical posture of raised up hands is about praise. It's about offering up prayers, but receiving God's goodness and giving him thanks. I love the fact when I see so many of you lifting your hands as we're pray as we're singing the doxology. It's very biblical. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he will say, I, I want everyone everywhere, all men everywhere, lifting up holy hands in prayer. It's a biblical posture. And so you see Solomon throwing his posture into his praising and prayer as he is declaring the durable, consistent goodness of God there at the altar in the house of God. Sounds so much like what his father wrote in Psalm 26, what we heard in the call to worship. Listen again to those words from Psalm 26, 6 through 8. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Further then, Solomon lays out multiple reasons to trust Yahweh. Notice in verse 14, as he's praying, notice what he says. O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth keeping covenant. He tells you what it is that's unique about Yahweh. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, etc. Now I want you to know that that was not a throwaway line from Solomon. He's not flattering God. He's actually stating historical theological truth. You see, trusting the gods in his day was a perilous venture. You never knew if you were Zeus's favorite or Hera's friend. Just go read the Iliad, you'll know what I mean. Or the Aeneid, you can't miss it. And even if you are their favored one for a moment, some other divinity might come along and sabotage the whole affair out of envy and jealousy. And in Solomon's own context, in the ancient Near East, it was exactly the same. Has anybody ever heard of Gilgamesh? You know, the story of Gilgamesh that they found 100 years ago somewhere. Yeah, what people forget is that in that story, the goddess Ishtar turns her affections on Gilgamesh. I'm in love, baby. She turns her affections on Gilgamesh and she woos Gilgamesh. She says, I want to be Mrs. Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh rejects her wooing in very hot terms by listing out all of her long history of infidelities with all of her previous lovers. Fidelity and divinity were not natural friends in most of the world that day and are not natural friends in most or all the world even today. The same goes on whether it's the gods of scientific determinism biological fatalism, or social and political saviorism. Fidelity and divinity does not go together in most cases. And yet Yahweh's past faithfulnesses are on display. You're unique. Of all the gods that men can think of, you're the unique one. You're the one who actually 
fulfills what you promise. Who would have thought? Amazing. Yahweh's past faithfulness leads then to Solomon's future anticipation, verse 16 and 17. So you've been faithful all along. And so he says in verse 16, Now therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised. And then the end of verse 17, And let your word be confirmed. Now he's looking to the future. Let your word be confirmed what you have spoken to your servant David. What you promised to him, that he would have a descendant who would sit upon his throne and would reign and that his kingdom would never really end, that his dynasty would continue and go on because you promised it. Confirm it. Just like you've confirmed everything else you've said. And so God's past faithfulnesses lead to Solomon's Anticipation, future anticipation. And my friends, Solomon's prayer will be answered. Maybe not the way you expected, but it will be answered. Because you read the rest of Second Chronicles and you realize it's a tenuous thing, the way things work out there. Through a series of promising characters like Jehoshaphat, one of my favorites, who was a knucklehead by the way, but one of my favorites... And Hezekiah and Josiah, promising characters who still had problems. And also through floundering failures, like even Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, or Manasseh, or Manasseh's son, Amon, or the four kings right after Josiah, before Judah's end. Through all of these high points and low points, the Lord will actually answer the prayer of Solomon Fulfill your word. And part of that word was that he would always have a descendant of David upon the throne of David. He will fulfill that word. It will be answered. And it will be answered a thousand years later. Anybody remember the story of Gabriel coming to Mary? Luke chapter 1. And what does Gabriel say to Mary? This child you're going to conceive... He's going to be the son of the Most High. He'll be the son of David. He'll sit on David's throne. Finally. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I read this to you before, but 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He says that repeatedly in many places. Because if Jesus is not the offspring of David, if he is not the Messiah of Israel, he cannot be the Savior of the world. And so God answers Solomon's prayer emphatically and permanently a thousand years later. When I run across that kind of stuff, especially when it's thousands of years later, is the answer. It makes me realize I'm a wimp when I pray. Because I'm always saying, right now, please. And then I get disheartened when right now it doesn't happen. And the Lord answers his prayer a thousand years later. And so, yes, the right God having done the right things. And now comes then the right response at the right place. It's the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. So Solomon leads God's people into the presence of God to dedicate the temple. I am so sorry. I've got to do this. Keep your hands to yourself, Steve. 
Notice in chapter 6, 18 through chapter 7, 10 that Solomon leads God's people into the presence of God to dedicate the new temple. And in so doing so, he enfolds good theology into his prayers. That's a good thing to do. He enfolds good theology in his prayers. Notice how he puts it like in verse 18. But will God dwell, indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And yet have regard to our prayers here. My friends, we're back to what we saw last week. God's immensity and His immediacy. His immensity, He is bigger than anything you can imagine. And His immediacy, He's near. Right? The nearness of God. The fact He wants to be near His people and yet He is immense. I think the good way to put this, and I'm just going to focus right now on the immensity of God, but I think a great way to put this is in that fill in the blank at the end of the sermon notes. St. Irenaeus in the 190 AD, 180 AD, as he was writing against Gnostics, one of my favorite people to write against. Oh, wait. He says this in his little bitty book on apostolic preaching. He says, the one who contains all things is contained by nothing. The one who contains all things is contained by no thing. That's exactly what Solomon is saying in his prayer here. This big palace, it's puny compared to you. You're immense. You who contain all things can be contained by no thing. So my friends, the God of verse 14, the God of verse 14, the God who is like no other God in heaven and earth, who keeps covenant and shows steadfast love to his servants, walking, who walk with him before him with all their heart, the God of verse 14 who loves to be with his people is beyond, Solomon says, beyond our grip, our ability to grip, our ability to manipulate, our ability to control. This God cannot be conscripted into our cause. This God cannot be contained in our constructions. This God cannot be roped in by our ruses. What in the world does that mean, Mike? I had somebody tell me the other day, sometimes you're clever but not clear. So let me try to be... I don't know how clever that was. But let me try to be clear. God cannot be roped into being an American or a Russian. God cannot be roped into being a Republican or a Democrat. God cannot be roped into being a Presbyterian or a Lutheran. He's too big. Too big. And, to try, and for us to try to squeeze him into our parties, into our sex, into our politics is far more pagan than it is pious. God is bigger, larger, grander than anything our paltry minds can even imagine or our puny hands can manufacture. Now let me pull together these two, the immensity of God and the immediacy of God. What does that mean? It means, yes, you can never contain him, but by grace, you can consort with him. 
It means you cannot encompass him in his majesty. But you can engage him in his mercy. The immensity and immediacy of God. And you see the immensity and immediacy of God coming together like a spear point, as I mentioned last week, in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us when beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has made Him known. The immensity and the immediacy of God come together like the tip of a spear point in our Lord Jesus. But look at Solomon's prayer. Verse 20 through 39. Solomon mentions eight scenarios. I won't go through them all, but he mentions eight scenarios. And in all of these, you cannot miss the fact that there's the rigor of God, his justice, and the restoration of God. The rigor and restoration of God. The pattern all the way through these eight scenarios is, Lord, when this happens or that happens and your people come to their senses and come to this place or pray toward this place, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive their sins or maintain their cause or right their wrongs, whatever the restoration part of that is. Whether it's war whether it's business skullduggery, whether it's sinful people, whether it's faith-breaking, whether it's drought, plague, affliction, or they're even in exile, whatever it is, if they finally come to their senses and pray toward this place or come here and pray in this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and maintain and restore. Solomon rightly assumes that the immense but immediate God wants us to disburden our concerns into his bosom, casting all our cares upon him. And you heard that as I was, after I got done with the announcements, as you were thinking about 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 7. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, therefore... Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting... All your cares, right? On him because he, why? Because he cares for you. And Solomon believes that a thousand years before that was ever written. But further notice that you can see in Solomon's prayer how God's rigor toward his people, the sense of justice, his rigor toward his people is always intended to bring restoration. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive or maintain or whatever it is. That God's rigor is always meant for God's restoration. It's what Paul says in reference to communion in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. When he says, and when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Or our Lord Jesus himself in Revelation three nineteen, the one who is the very spear point of God's immensity and immediacy. And he says in Revelation 3.19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There's the rigor. Therefore be zealous and repent. Oh, there's restoration. God's rigor is always meant to bring restoration. I think that's a good point to remember. 
Sometimes we get back and we face God's rigor and we hunker down into self-preservation mode or blame shifting or excuse making or whatever it is we hunker down into. And we don't allow the restoration, the forgiveness, the return to God. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're sitting there. Maybe you're watching online and that's you. Understand that God's rigor is meant to bring you into God's restoration. The door is open if you will but turn to him and say, I have done wrong. Forgive me my sins in your son, Jesus Christ. There's hope there. My friends, though there is much in Solomon's eight scenarios, there's much here that you and I could garner from by examining each scenario. And there really is. There's a ton in there. There's really one of the affairs he mentions that's quite the shock. It's in verse 32 and 33. He prays for the foreigners. He prays for the non-covenant members. People who are outlanders like Hiram, the king of Tyre. You may remember that from last week. And he says, if they come and they pray in this place or toward this place, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and answer their prayer that they may know That you are Yahweh, you're the only God in heaven and on earth and may come to you. Notice the evangelistic aspect here. It reminds us again of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 11. It's a house of prayer for all nations. Right? And how Jesus himself is the embodiment of the temple. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's a picture of our Lord Jesus. The ingathering of the foreigners in verse 32 and 33. And so the king here prays as a high priest and he prays with prophetic foresight. And you notice that God's world rescue operation keeps popping up and popping out. And so finally Solomon wraps up with his conclusion in verse 40 through 42. Echoing the words of the high priest in Numbers 10 about the ark. Come and come to your resting place Lord. That language. And God's response is to break out and invade the scene afresh in verses 1 through 3 with his glory. Just remember the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, actually means heavy. God's glory is so dense that the priests can't even stay in the temple. It shoves them out. And so it's a heavy glory. And so, my friends, as immense as God, the immense God draws near. And notice what the people do. The people respond with feasting and festive fellowship and submission to God and to his directions, wrapped up in corporate prayers and so forth. Notice they begin first by praying. They fall on their faces and they pray and they shout and they say, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then they start gathering the sacrifices together to worship him around his feast, his vittles, his food. And they celebrate and they sing again for a steadfast love endures forever. And it's all around God's promises and their submission to God's promises. And in this feasting and in this festive fellowship where they are all together seven days straight. Interesting. Dear friends... And I'm wrapping up, so hang in there. Drawing close to God and feasting upon his word and his vittles and his fellowship of his people all go together. Let me say something very un-American. Well, maybe un-21st century-ish. 
normally, ordinarily, one cannot say with any honesty and integrity that they are drawing close to God if they are avoiding feasting on His Word and His sacrament and His fellowship, the fellowship of His people. They cannot say with any integrity, I'm drawing close to God. God and I are like this, but I don't want to be with His people. Can't do that. Just go back and read Acts 2. What's the very first thing God's people do, the brand new baby Christians do, after they've been baptized? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Ordinarily, normally, that's how we draw close to God, is together around the word, the sacraments, and in prayer. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, for your kindness to us. As the people shouted, as they sang, as the priests shouted and sang, we have to say the same. For you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. There really is no God like you who is faithful. You, you are committed to yourself, to us, and you are faithful and we can depend on you. For that we also give you thanks for a steadfast love endures forever. We pray, Lord, for any who maybe are here or listening, who are, don't know you, who've been pushing you away, who've been turning away, that you would move upon their hearts and draw them in, that they may finally come with us and say, oh, the Lord is good. Oh, his steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.